0: How is theology changed by people, place and time? How is the Holy Spirit leading the church in the unfolding truth of Christ? How is it the Spirit's distinctive work to maximise gladness? And how can we be opened up by the past to imagine a new future? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to Professor Ben Quash, Ben is Professor of Christianity and the Arts at King's College London. His many publications include the work Theology and the Drama of History. And our title today is How Does Theology Unfold in the Drama of Life? Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy the show.
1: Ben Quash, welcome to Talking Theology. It's lovely to be here and virtually to be back in Durham, which was the the city of my childhood. So I wish I was there in person, but I get a sense of it through the, the light coming through your window. Well, it's, you,
0: you grew up about, I think, 150 metres away from where I'm sitting now. So, uh, Ben, welcome back to Durham. Ben, you're now a Professor of Christianity in the Arts at King's College London. Tell us about the journey to that role and then perhaps what, what your present role involves.
1: Yes, I'd, I'd been at Cambridge undergraduate and and postgraduate and then in various roles for, for nearly 20 years, I remember kind of totting it up at a certain point when I finally moved to King's and thinking, wow. And I initially read English literature as an undergraduate. Then after a year abroad in South Africa working in Soweto, I came back for ordination training at Westcott House and did a, effectively a second degree in theology as part of my ordination training. And that went well enough to mean that I, I was encouraged to consider doing doctoral work And I was very keen to try and combine my first degree and my second degree, so the literature stuff, with the theology. And I remember going to talk to David Ford, who was then a relatively new, young Regis Professor of Divinity at Cambridge. I mean, I was one of those people who felt the calling to do further study before I knew what my topic was. And David said, the theologian who sprang most obviously to mind, who would allow me to continue a bit of my literary interests, but also get into some really very substantial, chewy theology was was Hans Wurz von Balthasar, this 20th century Swiss Catholic theologian, because he'd written at some length on the relationship between theology and, in this case, particularly drama as a literary form, but a theologian who was very sort of sensitive to literary form. And so I began to read Balthasar and that took me into my PhD. And then after that, after a curacy in Cambridge, I was chaplain at Fitzwilliam College and then became dean at Peterhouse and director of studies and and very involved in, in shaping a, another sort of wave of theologians coming up uh, in the next generation. So that that was where I was until King's. And after 20 years, it felt like a good time to have some fresh pastures. Uh, Cambridge is a wonderful place, but also a very demanding place. It wants all of your time. It's a kind of 24-7 place. And King's is interesting because a lot of us who work there don't live in London. It's an You know, it's an expensive place to live, but also it works in in more normal hours. And that was attractive, but also it has extraordinary opportunities to engage with the arts. And so as I'd got deeper and deeper into theology and the arts, and particularly, as I said, the literary side, I wanted to see what London would offer. And King's had created this new post, a chair in Christianity and the arts that hadn't existed before as part of a sort of bigger in- initiative to engage more generally with London through culture. And lots of different departments came up with new posts. And, and the theology one was the one I eventually got to my delight. And so I had this new field to play in, as it were. And King's is placed right in the middle of all of these fantastic arts institutions. There are you know theatres on the South Bank, literally just across the river, Uh, The West End is there. The National Gallery is just down the street. We've got the Museum of London in the other direction, the Royal Opera House and so on. I mean, I I could go on, but they're in a sort of magic circle around where King's is lucky enough to be. And so it opened lots of doors. And in particular, the visual arts became the thing that was most receptive to my initial approaches. And that's the beginning of, of a whole lot of things I've done since then. You've sketched out already for us quite how
0: broad... A field you're playing in, in terms of the arts. And I want to take you back to your original doctoral research on this wonderful figure, impressive sounding name, Hans Urs von Balthasar, as you say, this incredibly significant Catholic theologian. And in particular, I want to explore his work on the relationship between theology and drama. But just take us back to who was he? Um tell us a little bit about his theology, his method, first of all, and and then we'll take it from there.
1: Yes, well, he is completely fascinating. Not least his legacy has been very significant because he was a great inspiration to both Pope John Paul II and, uh, and Pope Benedict, Joseph Ratzinger, as he was. And that's very surprising in a way because Balthazar's Career meant that for many decades he was somewhat of an outsider in relation to the Catholic Church. The beginning of the 20th century was a time of huge re evaluation of of Roman Catholic theology within itself. There had been a very dominant, long standing, dominant paradigm of how you did theology in Roman Catholic thought, and in particular how young seminarians were trained to be priests. And it was very indebted to what's often called the scholastic model of theology, which goes back to the Middle Ages, and Thomas Aquinas is perhaps the preeminent figure amongst the various medieval scholastic theologians. But later theologians, particularly after the Reformation, had codified yet more the the big systems of thought that the medieval scholastics had created. So theology, if you like, became like architecture. It was was like a, a sort of timeless system in which the different ideas that constitute Christian belief were linked to one another with incredible rigour and sophistication in a complex system of thought, which at the same time could seem to float free from the lived life of faith. You know, that it, it was quite intellectual and somehow often lacked what Balthazar himself would call the warmth of faith. He found it, to use his own word, arid. And as he was being trained as a Jesuit priest, he progressively found that he couldn't stomach it. And indeed, he put earplugs in his ears during lectures and and read the church fathers. And this is really significant. So the early church theologians, because at the same time as he was doing that as a young priest in training, a number of quite senior Catholic scholars, particularly early church scholars, were trying to revive some of the modes of doing theology that they saw in those early church fathers, which predated the medieval scholastics. Part of the reason Balthazar was attracted to what they were doing was that there was a poetry to it, that this theology didn't represent a desire to create a system. It was more a series of explorations and meditations, often directly engaged with the reading of scripture, sometimes written in the form of poetry or hymnody, And Balthazar found this very exciting. So it was sort of, it was more expressive of the theologian's own existential involvement with the subject matter. It was very closely related to biblical study and exegesis. And it was often teetering on the edge of artistic expression because it often took the form of highly rhetorical and even poetic communication. So that was all Balthazar, as it were, discovering already at that early stage the kind of theology he wanted to do. And that some of those sort of early patristic scholars that he was influenced by were treated with some suspicion at the time. And some of them had their license to teach removed for a while. Later, they became very much respected and, and brought back into the fold. But it showed that Balthazar was already willing to take a slightly different line. And for similar reasons, I think all through his career, he found himself sometimes a little bit outside the mainstream which is why it's so interesting that he became perhaps the most influential Catholic theologian in the later 20th century through these two popes, and has remained very influential amongst a lot of Catholic thinkers um, since he died in 1988. And he was just about to be made a cardinal when he died, so he very much was being brought back to the centre at that point. There's lots more I could say about him, but I think one of the patterns that we see that is consistent with that early love affair with the Church Fathers is this repeated interest in existential, well, dramatic engagement with the subject matter of theology, where you are involved, you don't stand back and analyse it, you're caught up into it, and a strong attention to the Bible, perhaps more, more than is typical in Roman Catholic thought, and this warmth. So as a Jesuit, Ignatius of Loyola was a great inspiration, and anyone who's ever read the spiritual exercises or even done them will know this is about biblical meditation, Existential involvement, your life becoming part of the drama of God's drama, and contemplation leading to mission and to action and to a transformative new life in faith. So that was a big part of his journey.
0: You mentioned the dramatic nature of Balthasar's understanding of theology. In other words, that we enter into the, the realities of the scriptural narrative, that this is not something that is a, simply a system out there. But And that's something you developed in your work. You read a book called Theology and the Drama of History. And you said, if we understand this dramatic element to theology, we can see more clearly, I think, three of theology's central concerns which you described as the people dimension, the place dimension and the time dimension. Why does paying attention to those three areas play such a significant role in doing theology well?
1: Yes it's interesting another way of putting those three things is the stage, the cast and the action which are a set of categories I use that in in the book and and maybe in some ways they have some continuity with Aristotle's famous unities that, that drama needs to have, a continuity of place and time and, and action. I think this is where I, I sort of feel my Anglicanism comes to the fore, both in appreciation of Balthazar and in some ways in critique of him, because perpetual preoccupation for me in my own theology has been the historical nature of existence, the historical nature of our knowledge of God, the way in which we discover God through. The unavoidability of life in history. So, richly contextualized theology seems to me one of the strengths of Anglican tradition. It's not an exclusively Anglican focus, but it's something that Anglicans have often made a priority and done well. What do you mean by richly contextualized theology? So, I suppose, in a way, to recall my slightly critical way of describing scholastic thought, it's about bringing theology down from the architectonic system which can seem to float free of history. In other words, it can seem to apply in the same way in every period of time and in in every place. It's just the system. That sort of alleged purity, if you like, and internal coherence can be brought down into a much richer set of engagements with the endlessly varied locations, cultural contexts, and time periods that are the life of the church in which theology unfolds. And One of my favourite words is that I do, and actually Balthasar uses it, this is when I feel appreciative towards his dramatic model, is that theology unfolds through the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is described in the New Testament as interpreting and unfolding all of the truth which is already in Christ. But that happens over time. And the contexts that receive that unfolding truth are of huge importance. You need to attend to them because they are part of what catalyzes that unfolding. So each new time, each new place, each new group of people has its part to play in the unfolding of the eternal truths of Christ. And the spirit is at work in what's being unfolded, whether it's the texts of scripture or the teachings of the church, and also at work in the people who are doing the unfolding and in the times and places. And I think this is part of a fully developed pneumatology, a fully developed doctrine of the Holy Spirit, that it's doing the work of providing, if you like, both the text and the context. The texts which are the received tradition of the church and the contexts which are needed for those those texts to open up and give themselves anew. And each time they do that, something is added to the church's own knowledge of the truths that, that are in Christ. So there's an additive dynamic. The Spirit is, as it were, working to reveal ever more of what's in Christ to unfold ever more the riches that are in Christ. And it's doing that by being in places, people, and times, as well as being in the sort of body of material that's received in those people and places and times.
0: Therefore, what you're outlining, Ben, is a more dynamic understanding of theology, that key word unfolding. It seems to me you're, you're not denying the the givenness of the creeds or the scriptural witness but you're guarding against a kind of systematic or rather kind of unchanging or like we've as if we've finished the whole story and and we just need to pass it on you're, you're suggesting there's this unfolding going on what does that mean therefore about the way we understand the gift of history i think you've described somewhere the terms you said history as a gift of the holy spirit
1: you're, you're absolutely right that the givenness as it were of what we have in in christ is something that in itself can't be added to. Christ is the definitive revelation of God to us. And so the the unfolding, if you like, is more of a question of the reception of that perfect truth and the mode in which we receive it. So that sort of additive dynamic that I've just been talking about is something that's more on on the side of our, our reception, both at the level of head knowledge and also the engagement of the heart. And it seems to me that Again, this is to take us back to pneumatology and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, that part of how I understand the Holy Spirit's distinctive work within the unified work of the Godhead is to maximise gladness. So this is actually to borrow an idea from Eugene Rogers' book, After the Spirit, where he talks about the Spirit enabling the creation's joyous response to God. And that the, the sheer gladness that's returned to the heart of God through the work of the Spirit in creation is part of a sort of dynamic within God in which gladness increases. And the dynamic of ever more joy, ever more gladness, ever more praise is part of the perfection of God. Um, but for that ever more to happen, for that dynamic to be possible, you need something like time. In fact, you know, part of the created order in its temporal extension, is the making space by God of time for the maximization of gladness. As a harvest comes to full ripeness, joy, and joy is associated with the eventual harvest, so the spirit is at work in bringing to ripeness the, the joyous response of creation to God's gift in Christ. And when that comes to its completion, there's a sort of overflowing gladness that can be returned to the heart of God. All of which is to say that history is, it may not be essential for God's purposes, but my goodness, it's sort of a wonderful, super-added domain of possibility for this gladness to expand and and grow. And I think it's not unlike the way that C.S. Lewis closes the Narnia books in the the last battle with that never-ending, further up and further in, you know, that's the evermore beautifully described in a sort of imaginative way by Lewis. Uh, and I would have got that because he loves the phrase evermore and sees it as part of the perfection of God, that it has an evermore dynamic to it. It strikes me that that's quite a distinctive understanding
0: of history, when put in contrast to what one might call a kind of post-Enlightenment, post-18th century idea of progress, this idea that, and one of the things that the idea of progress that we're getting cleverer, quicker, smarter, is that sort of we slightly look down on then as sort of somewhat naive or ignorant or something like that. Your understanding of history is much more dynamic. It's much more appreciative of what's gone before because it's about maximising gladness rather than simply progressing knowledge. Is that a
1: fair distinction to make, Ben? It's a brilliant distinction to make. Absolutely. That really captures it well. And it, it means that this dynamic hopefulness about what history can yield in terms of a harvest of praise doesn't need to be wedded to progress in fact i mean i think it's it's intellectually almost impossible to sustain a, a sort of narrative of historical progress in in the face of what we see every day in the world around us so there's there's a different way in which i think this harvest is being garnered than just in a straightforward linear narrative of progression towards god instead i think one has to think of history is in some sense opaque to us in terms of where praise is being garnered, where the where the dynamic of response to god is is being gathered back to the heart of god and and it's almost certainly the case that very often we have no idea where that is and it will be in places we least expect perhaps or where we ha- to which we have no access and in many of the places where suffering is at its greatest i mean traditionally and and this is a sort of in a way a sort of dark form of of what is fundamentally the glad self offering of the church. part of what's offered is martyrdom and I think Balthazar too would have been aware that a Christian theology of martyrdom is fundamentally a theology of praise and of gladness and of self giving but it can take forms that are not just distinct from any kind of model of historical progress but actually positively sort of counter to it, that some of the offerings back to God are the direct result of the fact that history is cruel and often represents all sorts of abandonment of of its higher aims, you know, all all sorts of betrayals of its best possibilities. Um, But even in those moments of betrayal, there can be glad offerings to God
0: you've mentioned that therefore maximizing gladness is is a much richer term than simply sort of increasing happiness for example it, it's a much richer idea and it involves a much wider space in which god's praise might be offered can i take you back to that very dynamic understanding of theology that you articulated in terms of theology as a dramatic activity it's something we enter into and you mentioned the Ignatian tradition, in which we imaginatively enter into scriptural stories and and pictures, what role do you see, therefore, imagination playing in the theological task? And, and it may be something where we see that very dynamic relationship between the theology and the arts bearing particular fruit.
1: Yes, imagination is an interesting word because it's it's had various meanings in. In the history of Western thought. And I think many pre-modern thinkers thought of imagination as almost like the, the faculty we we have as humans to receive a, a sort of imprint of an image. So it's part of how we retain our recollection of a particular experience that we've had, is through our imagination because it's received the imprint of that experience, and we can can, as it were, well, carry it with us forward in time and revisit it whereas in a sort of post-enlightenment period and particularly in the hands of maybe certain more romantic thinkers imagination becomes a very very energetic creative faculty of the human it doesn't just receive an imprint it creates things and in creating uh, samuel taylor coleridge you know, puts this very powerfully you know, we, we actually are in the image of god when we use our imaginations creative. we project things forward we don't just recall imprints of past experiences. And of course, the imprints of our past experiences are part of the raw material we use when we project things forward. But the imagination has this extraordinary power to conjecture, to project, to leap forward, um, to, make, to explore worlds that might be. And I'm very in sympathy with that. And I think theology has a lot to gain from that, as actually have many other forms of human thought and and inquiry not least the the sciences which actually work in this way all the time through hypotheses where possible futures are are conjured up and then tested and i use the word abduction for this which is a a, a borrowing from coleridge actually he uses the the language of abduction not anything to with aliens snatching you away from the earth but something that is a form of reasoning towards imagining new frameworks and new contexts for oneself and for the world in which new things might be possible. And they're always revisable, but they broaden our minds and they facilitate new experiments in life and thought. And I actually think the parables are like that. Jesus's parables are sort of forms of abductive thought. They say, imagine if the world was like this. And they're not just without consequence. They're not just thought experiments without consequence. They actually change what people feel able to do, um, because the way we imagine the, the world as it might be can play directly into the things we're willing to risk doing. And so abduction draws us forward, leads us forward, and that, etymologically, that's that's in the word, sort of leads us forward into some of the spaces that we have imagined as possible spaces for life and flourishing. So I think imagination has a huge amount to play in. keeping us open to the future as well as helping us recall the past you've articulated a
0: an understanding of theology ben which is far removed from a system approach that you sort of mentioned that Balthasar was critiquing in his early work but also an approach to theology which which seems simply kind of removed from human existence or human life therefore but is an infinitely innovative creative imaginative process in which the Spirit is leading us through history and this unfolding, as you've described it. I wonder, therefore, where does this leave you as a, both a professional theologian, an ordained minister, a practising Christian, in your own experience of doing theology? If I can ask, perhaps, in how it touches on your own prayers, your own worship, your own discipleship. Could you reflect on how that? is touched and connected with by your own very dynamic
1: understanding of theology as a gift? Perhaps this will sound paradoxical, but in terms of my own worshipping life, I'm quite traditionalist, really. I mean, I I, I worship in a, we live in a little village just north of, of Cambridge, I commute into London, and I worship very happily in a small village parish church, which probably is just sort of slightly more on the on the catholic end it's i mean it's pretty relaxed but but quite sort of liturgically traditional and i'm really happy in in that and i I suppose for me there's never been a strong tension between inhabiting traditional forms and being open to new insights it's interesting just again to recall baltazar in that period and in the early 20th century that one of the key fruits of of what in French was known as the ressourcement, so that going back to the early church fathers. The French word ressourcement meaning sort of going back to the sources and resourcing the church from those ancient sources. One of the main fruits of that was actually a new openness to contemporary culture, to contemporary thought, and Balthazar was riding the wave of that in his world. So so the two went together, that traditional tradition and openness went together. And, and actually, it's not unlike... I remember... Um, Graham Cray, who was principal of Ridley when I was training at Westcott House in Cambridge, he used to use the phrase, roots down, walls down. And in a way, that was how Balthazar was at work in the early 20th century, that deep roots can actually also mean more openness. So I suppose my sense of my own sort of worshipping life has that in it, that I like tradition, I like inherited ways, and part of the limbering up and being made flexible for new discoveries in the present and in the future is is partly through being opened up by the past. And I think one other thing I would say, I mean, I preach quite regularly in our parish church and sometimes elsewhere. And without that, I think my sort of academic theological work would be hugely impoverished. And very often I find stuff I've been preaching about in our parish church finds its way into my academic writing in some way or another and that's just that weekly exposure to scripture with all its grit and sort of unpredictability which unsettles the lovely schemes that theologians like to devise for themselves mike higton who's as you know a colleague at durham of yours he uses this nice image of theology liking to polish everything until the danger of polishing something too much is all you see is your own reflection whereas scripture is gritty and resistant to that polish and so the discipline of preaching keeps on bringing you up against the grit and that keeps you open you've talked about being opened
0: up by the past we've certainly
1: been opened
0: up by your engagement only with the past but also god's creative work in the present Ben Quash, thank you very much indeed for appearing on talking theology
1: thank you for having me
0: have been listening to from Theology, a podcast from Cranmer Hall, Durham. Cranmer Hall is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at
1: cranmerhall.com.